0: One cold October evening, I sat down to have a conversation with someone I had never met before, whose game I had never played, nay, not truly even read, and with whom I imagined I perhaps had very little in common. In actuality, I had one of the most illuminating and intriguing hobby conversations that I have ever had, and the great thing was that we'd agreed to record and share it. Hey, it's Che and this is a bonus episode of Roleplay Rescue.
1: Che's gonna bring me back Give me a plus one to attack Whoa, oh, oh. I want to come back to the dice Whoa, oh, oh, oh I think I need, good I need a roleplay Oh yeah! I need a roleplay Oh yeah! Oh yeah!
0: Hello, rescuers. Welcome back to Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our lost role-playing games hobby. This interview came about through the intervention of a Roleplay Rescue listener, Matthew, who had called in some weeks back after listening to Season 7, Episode 5. I think he's been listening all the way through the back catalogue. He suggested that given the imminent crowdfunding for the Adventurer Conqueror King System 2nd edition, plus my interest in simulationist gaming, perhaps a conversation with Alex MacRice would be something well worth having. I said yes. Alex said yes. And this is the recording. I'm posting it as a bonus episode to Season 13 because I want to make sure anyone interested in Acts 2 can find out about the Kickstarter. Links are in the show notes. More than all of that, though, I found this to be a fascinating insight into the mind of a deeply thoughtful gamer. I hope that you will enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Massive thank you to Alex for coming on the show. Thank you to Matthew for suggesting it. This is Adventurer Conqueror King with... Alex Macris, let's dive in. Alex Macris is the lead designer for the Adventurer Conqueror King system, an old school fantasy RPG designed to support campaign play. He's the founder of Autark LLC, a game design studio from Durham in North Carolina, USA, which publishes Axe and several other titles. Alex is also an entrepreneur and the author of Arbiter of Worlds, a primer for game masters, as well as have made a host of other grand achievements over many, many years. So thanks for joining us, Alex, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Awesome to be here. I'd love to start right at the beginning. I'd like to rewind all the way back and find out what your backstory was. So how did you get into role-playing games? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, we got to go all the way back to um, 1980.
1: Mm-hmm. We had just moved back to the United States. My, my family used to live overseas in Algeria. And we had just moved back to the United States. And my older brother, who was... Uh, eight years older than me, um, enrolled in the local middle school or high school Dungeons and Dragons Club. And so he came home with these amazing looking books and miniatures. And, you know, five-year-old me was like, oh, wow. You know, now my mother was really big into fantasy and science fiction. So she had read me um, elements of Lord of the Rings and Narnia and things like that and given me books. So sort of I was primed to love it. And um, my brother very graciously put up with his, you know, crazy prodigy kid brother learning to play d from him. And um, so by like seven, I was running RPGs for, you know, the, the third graders. And then I just kind of kept going from there. So um, I, I honestly barely remember any moment in my life when I wasn't playing RPGs because before age five it gets pretty foggy.
0: Yeah, okay, so we have a similar kind of backstory. I started when I was about six, seven years old uh, with some friends and Traveller, so yeah, it's kind of interesting to, to go back, isn't it? And through the years, I presume you've played a lot of different things. I know in Arbiter World, you reference lots of different games, so. Uh, oh, yeah. you know, Yeah, for sure. Um, so,
1: obviously, I've played all the editions of Dungeons & Dragons, um, from AD&D to Basic to 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th. I've played uh, a lot of Cyberpunk 2020, which is one of my very favorite games. A lot of Mecton, another game I liked. Um, I played the hell out of Robotech by Palladium, Um, and I played uh, you know all of their associated riffs, ninjas and super spies, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, DC Heroes, Ars Magica, Vampire the Masquerade. I mean, essentially the whole gamut.
0: And, and so what is it that you most enjoy about them? Because if you had a lifetime playing them, there must be something that particularly draws you in.
1: Oh, sure. Well, mostly I'm I'm the perpetual game master. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can count probably on one hand the number of campaigns I've gotten to play versus Game Master. What I really enjoy about game mastering is it it's a um it's like a full spectrum um challenge for the mind, right? Like you have to have Verbal intelligence mathematical intelligence, spatial intelligence, Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, social skills. Um, You know, you need to be able to read the room, you need to control pacing, you need to be able to do um, dramatic versus non-dramatic voices, things like that. You know, it's this this sort of full spectrum activity. And so, um, you know, I tend to suffer a lot from like racing mind, like distracted, lost in my thoughts and so, game mastering for me is one of the few activities where I'm able to provide 100% focus and feel totally absorbed, and I really like that.
0: Mm, yeah, it's um, it's certainly the very big reward, isn't it? For you yeah. know, when you get into mastering, especially if you've got a nice group and you, you get into that sort of rhythm and pace with it as well. That's absolutely yeah. ace. The other thing I really
1: enjoy, you know, and and when I have really fond memories of, is seeing my friends get to feel like heroes right um you know when we get together and you know recount the past a lot of the memories that we share are memories from games and whether it was you know ridiculous disasters or awesome moments of heroism um you know they're very fondly remembered and it it's a really good feeling when you see like a room of players break out in cheers because you know newton just slew the dragon and everyone is slapping him on the back and etc it's nice it's satisfying
0: yeah, you mentioned in Arbitrary Worlds this sort of big thing about uh, your theory of games being around um, agency. So I guess yes. you're kind of, it's an illusion there, isn't there, to what, to what you're talking about? How I think you talk about how you know we don't have a lot of that necessarily in many of our lives, but then when we get to the role-playing game table, we really do truly. Well, if we're the GM lets us, we can have you know, that great agency. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that's a, a major point. Um, Yeah, about, I don't know, 15 years ago, I read this book, it was called um, Dual Diagnosis and Misdiagnosis of Gifted Children and Adults. And one of the things I talked about in the book was that, um, you know, people on the upper end of the intelligence spectrum um, tend to experience like existential depression more than ordinary folks, because they kind of look at the world and they realize, you know, despite having great potential as humans, they realize how limited the scope of action really is. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, role-playing games are a hobby where you create, uh, an unlimited scope of action. And I think, you know, granted it's, it's only vicarious, um, you know, it's just a game, but, um, but it's real in the sense that it's real to your social circle, which is, you know, what humans are wired to measure against, you know? And I, I mean, I think if we wanted to get philosophical, we could also make an argument that, in the entirety of sort of Western industrial civilization is basically a game at this point, right. You know, we're <laughs> for the vast majority of people. It's not about subsistence. It's about status and accumulating points and things like that. You know, so. Okay.
0: Uh, I think it's kind of interesting as well. I have a theory about uh, a lot of role players, you know, they seem to be, shall we say intellectually precocious, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, perhaps a little, a little bit different as well. And quirky. There's lots of like, you know, uh, over the years i met many many different types of people but yeah one of the things that has come up a lot and a lot you know many many times over is around sort of mental health as well so um you know one of the things we talk about a lot on role rescue is the sort of how to overcome the anxieties that people have and all those kind of things and sometimes i wonder if that is linked with you know what's going on upstairs and what we perceive around us in the world you know so it's kind of an interesting point
1: yeah yeah for sure i i, I do think it's um I think it's, it's psychologically beneficial. And I think, you know, you learn one of the things I was surprised about was, uh, was how much you learn about how people react under stress, even when it's just imaginary stress. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are some people that will be, we have one player who's totally distracted anytime there's downtime in the game and barely pays attention and mind wanders, but the moment the danger dials up and it's like threatened by a party wipe, suddenly he turns into Sun Tzu. And then we have, <laughs> you know, a, um, you know, and then we have another player who's you know a really good role player. You know, he's always there, always paying attention, but you know, when the danger level dials up, he's like, that's it, man came over. We are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, it's just, it's really funny to see. And, and, you know, if you just knew them in, in like ordinary life, you wouldn't realize that they had these personality traits.
0: I wanted to ask why you created Adventure Conqueror King system. So you know, tell us a little bit of AX. I mean, that's what published in two thousand twelve. Around then, yeah, two thousand twelve. Yeah, first
1: was the our initial release. Hmm. Um, it was a combination of a couple of things. So first, um, in two thousand eight, um, my friend Alan Varney published an article on the Escapist, of which I was the publisher, and he started talking about the old school Renaissance, which was right. this new movement that had emerged. And I read that article and I thought to myself, that's really cool. You know, I haven't played old school d and in a long time. I should pull out the old red box and give it a go. Mm-hmm. And I happened to have a bunch of friends that had never played Keep on the Borderlands. And so we just decided to start playing it. Yeah. And, um, and so the, that was like the genesis of the r and Empire campaign that later served as the basis for Axe. And, you know, as we were playing, I realized, you know, I wanted to incorporate, you know, mass combat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I sort of kept adding more and more and more um, back-end rules to the game. While this was happening, um, my my wife at the time started to get quite ill. And so she, um, she developed myalgic encephalomyelitis. And so, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome. And I ended up with a lot of downtime because I was sitting at home near her but she would be sleeping I had to be there in case she needed me but I couldn't really interact with her mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to do with myself and so she said to me one day she said you know honey you spend so much time on your role-playing games why don't you write them up and make make something out of them you know and I thought to myself oh that that's a really good suggestion and um, and so it was a combination of like having this um, this downtime I didn't know what to do with. Mm. Uh combined with this role-playing game campaign that was really flourishing um, was the Genesis.
0: Okay. So, I mean, for me, I mean, I I came across your work through Arbitrary Worlds when I remember, 2018, I think, something like that. Um, and obviously I'd heard about Axe, but to my mind it was like another one of those kind of um early DD BX clone kind of things in my head. Um but having sort of returned to it more recently, um, when you look at it in more detail, you can see that it's doing some other things. So what would you say it is doing that adds to that original kind of DD and um, approach to play? Because I suspect there are a, quite a few innovations that are, are worth talking about. All right.
1: Well, that's kind of you. Um, well, so the first thing I would say is that um, Axe spent a lot of time thinking through how a game would scale from first level to high level where high level play would be qualitatively different than low level play. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to have a game where at first level you kill goblins and at 14th level you kill really powerful goblins, right? Because mm-hmm. yep. that MMO leveling treadmill that so many games have. I also didn't want to create a game, which is this mud core game where you start off at first level and everybody dies and then you die again and then you die again and nobody ever gets past third level, but they say it's a great OSR game. Okay. Mm. Plenty of games do that. All good. Plenty of games to the leveling treadmill. All good. What Axe does is it emulates the mythic cycles of, you know, your Beowulf, uh, your Aragorn, your Conan, where they start as an adventurer and they eventually arise to becoming a king. King we use as a loose approximation of a number of different endgame choices. Like you could be an archmage running a wizard's guild, or you can become a thief running a powerful crime syndicate where you're the godfather of a city. Um, you know, you can become a, a, a merchant um, magnet where you've got trade houses and caravans around the world, etc. But whatever path you pursue, um, it is a radical change in gameplay as you advance. To make that work required um, an enormous amount of game design rebalancing because, for instance, if you make spells too powerful, then you don't need armies on the battlefield because the wizard will just destroy the army. But if you don't need armies on the battlefield, then you don't really need domains and strongholds and realms in order to field armies. You can just be superheroes. Hmm. Uh, On the other hand, if you make fighters not powerful enough then by the time you get to high level the fighter on the battlefield can't really have any impact and so um the there is like this often this perception like oh axe is just an osr clone but it's only superficially so if you look at the actual mechanics they've been very subtly changed and it's more obvious in the second edition than in the first um, but i'll give you some i'll give you some examples um fireball traditionally a 20-foot radius 20 foot radius. Now the thing is a a, a company of troops occupies a 60 foot by 40 foot area. So 20 foot radius will wipe out a company of troops, but a 20 foot diameter is actually a better spell for use in dungeons. And it only wipes out about a platoon of troops. Hmm. So that one tweak from the adventurer's point of view, they barely notice the difference. Fireball is still an amazing spell. Now when we scale it up to mass combat, it has this huge impact. Another example is the cleaving rules um you know in in acts every time a fighter kills a target he can attack again and if he kills that target he can keep attacking up to a number of times equal to his level and that enables us to have you know mass battlefield formations but you also can have a guy like an achilles you know who in book 30 of the iliad is just like on a cleaving rampage and you know on his chariot um and so uh, all these little dials and levers were very very carefully tuned to make a game that would work how i wanted
0: and this is something where um there's an illusion in arbitrary worlds as well your know, your book on game mastering about like rebalancing spells so that like villains don't you know just don't have to act stupid all the time. I think there's a reference in there to about like you know dialing back teleportation spells and scrying and that kind of stuff so that you know because one of the one of the concerns I think you talk about is this idea that often you've got these uber powerful villains who then just don't deal with the party. and and then, of course, basically act stupidly. And a lot of that, again, coming back to mechanisms where if the GM really did, you know, have that high-level wizard, you know, use their magic against the party, they just obliterate them. So, again, this kind of rebalancing is really important. Is that something else that was sort of, has bled its way into, you know, your game? Oh,
1: yeah, for sure. Um, You know, for instance, teleportation is never without risk in acts, and the risk is actually quite high. Mm. So you might use it if you're desperate, um, but you're definitely not going to use it if you're a thousand-year-old you know, sorcerer king who has plans that work on you know, decades and centuries-long cycles. Like, really, you're going to risk a 10% chance of death? No, you're, you're not going to do that. Um, the, so you know, more or less, the way you get from point A to point B is you walk there or you ride there or you fly there. And you, know, you could fly pretty fast, but still slower than a modern you know, American car. Mm-hmm. So you avoid this problem of like, well, Sauron just shows up and kills Frodo. Okay, yeah, yeah end of campaign. <laughs> so we, we avoid that. Um, and then things like uh, another major area was um, resurrection spells, right? Like, you know, oh, you assassinate the king, but he just comes back because we restored him to life. Well, you know, that, that's not very good for, you know, criminal hijinks and stuff. So the way we handled that was we created this table called the tampering with mortality table. And every time you try and restore someone to life, they have to ro- roll on this table. And, um, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, you know, the, the choosers of the slain return you to your soul and all as well. You know, and other times it's like, you know, your soul returns to your body, but your body is still dead. And now you're a walking corpse or, you know, any range in between. So there's like all these horrible things that can happen to you when you do that. Um, and, and we use that in the campaign world, like in the Capital of the Borderlands, which is our campaign setting guide. Um, the prefect of the Borderlands accidentally um, fell off his horse, broke his neck and died. And his wife, who was so traumatized by it, insisted that they restore him to life, even though she sort of didn't get him there very quickly. And so he's come back, but now he's ceaselessly plagued by the dead who are constantly talking to him. And, um, and he's you know, basically a nut job. And so the borderlands is ruled by this nut job because his wife wouldn't just be like, "Oh, I'm sorry, you died." So anyway, so like you know, a w- lot of little um, elements like that have been put into the game to make sure that um, you know the outcome uh, of the of the spells, the outcome of the rules is what we want in the game world. It's very much a game where um, the rules are intended to be like the natural laws of the setting.
0: Mm. Another thing that a lot of people have spoken to me about when they try to persuade me to try out um, Axe was the economics of it as well. And, you know, I know that from I'm, I'm currently just started, actually, a new basic D&D game with uh, the school club that I run with. So I'm introducing kids to to you know D&D 1983. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, which is always good fun. But of course, you run up very quickly against the economics of it all. You know, like, oh, you just have like 3,000 gold coins just so you can get the XP. And it's that thing of like, what do you do with the money? So um, I hear that axe kind of deals with that quite well.
1: Yeah, it does. Um, It's funny because I think economics is what people mention most um, about the game, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's like, well, I didn't create Accountant Conqueror King, right? (laughs) It was Adventure Conqueror King. (laughs) So here's what happened there is I decided I wanted to do mass combat. Mm. Um, And so in order to do mass combat, I had to figure out, well, how much would it cost to field an army? But Then in order to figure out uh, how to field an army, I also then had to figure out, well, what do you need to do to supply an army? And in order to figure out how much to supply an army, I needed to know, well, how many peasants do you need to provide the food for the army? Mm -hmm. And well, then, well, you know, how are those peasants run and what do they produce? And how many swords can you buy to equip your army? And what is the logistics train like? And I essentially accidentally built a simulation of the Roman economy while trying to just make the war game (laughs) aspect make more sense. Um, but then it, it, it turned out to be a reward in and of itself because of, I mean developed the merchant guild rules and the market availability rules and all these things like this. But it, it originated from, from you know, that old saying that like amateurs study strategy and professionals study logistics. It, it, it arose from me trying to work out the logistics of fantasy warfare.
0: And I think the appeal for me is that I I since, and I think this is already starting to come out in our conversation here, the simulationist, you know, sort of desire hidden in here, which you know, something that always draws me uh, deep into role playing games. You know, I want to believe I'm in that fantasy world, and the more the GM provides for me, uh, you know, a really believable world, uh, I know it's fantasy, don't get me wrong, but you know what I mean? Like it's grounded; it's got a sense of um, it could be real. I guess about right. yeah. it. Right. And I think that's super important. Is that something that you you generally feel as well? Absolutely. Have you seen my, I did a few videos on
1: simulationism on YouTube. Have you seen
0: them? I've seen one. So two.
1: one, of the, one <laughs> of the things I talk about is the, is, uh, the noetic appreciation of verisimilitude, mm. right? Which is the reverse of suspension of disbelief. You know, with suspension of disbelief, we uh, ignore things we know to be true in order to not be annoyed by what we're watching right? Noetic appreciation of verisimilitude is we remember things we know in order to better enjoy what we're experiencing. And, you know, the example I use in the video is, um, you know, the professor, professor of military history watching the movie Alexander and just the joy he gets when he sees that all the uniforms are correct and the fighting formations are correct. And he can identify which unit he's looking at just by the formation and the banners and things. Yeah. And, um, and so, that's it's a, it's an entirely distinct pleasure from the pleasure of, you know, taking a risk on the die roll or the pleasure of hearing your friend talk with a goofy voice. It's a different pleasure. And only simulationism can provide that pleasure.
0: So to me, that's hugely important. Sorry, it just reminds me of my wargaming days, you know, like um, the same thing, playing World War II tank games with my dad growing up, you know, and then you watch World War II films and you're like either pulling your hair out or just very occasionally going, oh, ooh." ooh. And and it's that moment where you recognize that they've actually taken the time to, you know, stick a Mark IV out there with the correct markings on, you know, whatever. Yes, totally. Totally.
1: So I don't know if you know this, before I designed Axe, the first game I ever designed was called Modern Spearhead. And it was a six millimeter micro armor war game um, for Cold War combat. Awesome. So I love, uh, I love tabletop war games, miniature
0: war games. I have a huge collection upstairs it's my background too um we could probably talk about that for hours but yeah talk a bit more about simulationism so you, you've got this noetic appreciation thing and i I've, i think that's a great phrase actually i've always i've spoken quite a few times actually about the a disbelief thing i i just absolutely it drives me insane to have to do yeah. that when i'm watching a movie or a tv show or even when i'm reading a book or whatever you know and to come to the role-playing game table and Yet again, I have to roll my eyes every two minutes, of, you know, and ignore things that I know are absolutely ridiculous um, because we're trying to make it cool at the table. is something that you know personally don't like.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm definitely the same way. And another reason I leaned into simulationism um, also was that what I learned when you scale a game up from first level to high level minor mistakes that would be irrelevant at first level Mm -hmm. um, end up having world shaking consequences at high level you know if you slightly misprice the cost of a heavy infantry at first level when they're hiring some mercenaries who cares you know it's a rounding error but then all of a sudden you find at 14th level you're like Oh wow, the, the Roman Empire can't actually afford to field the legions it needs to defend itself because I mispriced heavy infantry by five gold pieces. Mm. You know, and that, that's a painful feeling. And so to make sure it all works, you know, you have to make it a simulation. Um, or you have to engage in constant hand waving and ask for suspension of disbelief. And I'm just I myself don't like having to engage in suspension of disbelief. I want mm. to believe it's all real. I'm that guy from Galaxy Quest where he's like it's all real i knew it you know like yeah, that's, yeah. that's who i am and um and so i i make games for for people like that for people to whom it matters you know some mm-hmm. of the nicest compliments i've ever gotten on ax were hey i used it to simulate um an actual historical battle and it played just like i thought it would and things like that mm-hmm. like that makes yeah. me feel really
0: good now that's really exciting stuff isn't it when you can and there are so few games that do that i mean the pervading kind of culture and don't get me wrong if people can play however they want, but the pervading culture here is about the, I want to tell me the cool story and all of that stuff. And um, I, I personally find that the emergent story that comes from like what we are doing at the table is the most fascinating thing. So,
1: Yeah. I, I talk about that a bit in the book and I describe it as the difference between visiting a zoo and going on a safari, mm-hmm. you know, like in, you can, you can go to the zoo and you can enjoy or, or Disney animal kingdom or whatever the theme park, Um, And you can have a really good experience, but at the end of the day, you know, it's not real, right? There was Mm -hmm. was no risk of the tiger actually getting out of the cage and eating you. Um, Or you can go on a safari in Africa and a real safari, you know, there is some risk, there is some discomfort. But, you know, nobody brags on Facebook about going to the zoo. People brag about going on a safari. Mm Because it matters more. And the reason it matters more is because it's more real. It's more visceral. And in the same way, like playing an RPG with emergent story, with no fudging of the dice, if you become king, that means something. If you're playing an RPG and you just become king because everybody's like, oh, it'd be cool if I became king at the
0: table, then it means much less. Absolutely. Speaking of kings, um, one of the things I did like um, was the suggestion that so I think it's in the original back of the original core book of, of actually having players play characters at three different tiers. I think it is of play or di- different yeah. kind of levels. So, you might, mu- you know, the idea of having a king who's ruling or, you know, someone in, in authority who's ruling an area and then the generals kind of going out and doing stuff. And then the adventurers working for those guys, you know, doing sort of scut work as well down the bottom end. That, that sounded like a fun kind of uh you know premise for a campaign i guess and you could work at different levels
1: yeah i think it's it's a it's a really fun idea um i've only been able to put it into limited implementation in my own games um in Mm -hmm. my O'Plenian Knights campaign Mm -hmm. um we had uh we had some players playing like the various lords and whatnot and then um others were playing the um you know the adventurer tier There are some folks in the online community, though, that have really taken that and run with it. And they're doing these huge 30, 40 player campaigns, multiple characters per player playing every day. You know, it's pretty it's pretty epic to see.
0: I kind of wonder whether it would be fun, because I've got a few friends who are not able necessarily to come along to sessions, but I, I could easily, for example, give them someone in authority within the world and with a system like this one where it actually is all kind of balanced through and and worked through, you know, you can get them doing, making moves on the big board as it were, and then yeah. having the consequence of that filter all the way down to your regular game group. That sounds fun, you know?
1: Yeah. My, you know, it's funny, my experience when I um, did that, you know, plenty mm. of nights is that the players You know, I always thought of myself as a a pretty ruthless game master who pulled no punches, but man, compared to an actual player who you tell them this is your character and your goal is to conquer this region, they really pull no punches. And so that campaign actually ended with a party wipe, like the heroes lost. The adventurers got killed to the last man. And um, and that was really eye-opening to me is how much, um, even as someone who prides himself on objective GMing and prides himself on never fudging, Introducing a third party to play uh, a ruler um made the game more challenging. I was like, that mm-hmm. was a it's a pretty interesting takeaway. And I think there's a lot to be gained from like incorporating those kind of war game multi-tier aspects into a campaign.
0: Yeah. And it, it reminds me as well of the original, you know, like Arneson's original game as well, which was very, you know, was very much a player versus player and yeah. him, you know, in him initially um adjudicating that, right? And, you know, arbitrating. So yeah, it's kind of interesting to sort of maybe revise some of the that those ideas yeah definitely definitely so tell us then it's uh you know we're coming up to uh, you've mentioned axe two in passing so what are you doing next with the system um tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah yeah so um i'm doing adventure conquer king system imperial imprint or axe ii or axe (laughs) two um The initial plan was simply to consolidate all the rules and supplements I've written over the last 10 years into a couple Mm -hmm. volumes and just release that. Um, And then in January of this year, Wizards of the Coast engaged in this perfidious treachery of um, deauthorizing the open game license. And, you know, yes, they later backtracked and, you know, um, made some apologies, but they've never actually said we don't have the right to deauthorize the open game license. And my sense was, um, if an evil corporation shows you that they're evil and intend to screw over your business, you should believe them. And so um, I decided I had to pull my products off of the open game license. And as a result, um, I had to redo large chunks of acts. And since I had to redo large chunks, I thought to myself, well, I may as well use this opportunity to just add all the improvements I've had on paper and, you know, in, in play and home campaigns, just throw it all together to really make the game um, a, a better version of itself, and so that became Acts Two. So it's a three-volume, um, three-volume game. There's the core rules, which is the revised rulebook. Um, then there's the judges' journal, and then there's a monstrous manual. I really like alliteration. Oh, I can tell. <laughs> and is it coming soon? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, it is kickstarting on October 24th, so uh, we are eight days away. Um, right. Yeah, you can find it on Kickstarter at you know the Adventure Conquer King System Imperial Imprint. Um, you know we've got a uh, number of tiers so you can uh, get in for50 dollars we'll get you the PDF for all three books which is about 1500 pages of content it's a it's a huge amount of content um, and then we have all the way up to like you know our patron deity and cosmark tiers where you can d- work with me to you know custom create spells in the world and you know have your adventures illustrated and control what one of the chapters looks like and things like that so've got a, f- a full range of
0: options for the you know the entry level all the way up to the whale. Well, make sure we get links into the show notes for people so they can go and hit that up. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, the goal with this episode is to like stick it out as a bonus to make people aware, really, as much as anything. Although I am delighted to be having the chat.
1: Yeah, you know, I've had a lot of trouble um, getting outside of like uh, my niche. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every Kickstarter I do, I have four hundred to five hundred guys that. Always, always back, always support like for them, it's the greatest game ever. And then it just doesn't expand beyond that. And the thing is, I know there's more than 400 people on the planet that are war gamers who are also role playing gamers. I know there's more than 400, 500 people on the planet that like simulation. I just haven't been able to reach them. So this year I'm I'm doing this like this promo tour, right? Where I'm just talking yeah. to everybody about my game and my work and really putting myself out there. I started a YouTube channel, yeah. which is embarrassing at age 48 to start one. You know, like if I had started it like 20 years ago, it would have been cool, but it didn't exist <laughs> 20 years ago. So... <laughs>
0: um, we well, we appreciate what you're doing, um and I think that your YouTube channel is based on a lot, a lot of stuff you did for Arbiter of Worlds, right? With your book, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you tell, us a, um, tell us a little bit about that. Why did you write that book? And then, you know, as you're taking it out onto YouTube, you know, what what's the sort of angle there? I, mean, I think we've alluded to it, but i would be great to have.
1: Oh, you. sure, sure. So Arbiter of Worlds actually came out of a series of. um Articles I wrote for The Escapist back in 2008, 2009. I was the publisher of The Escapist, but I was also a contributor to the website and wrote content for it. And I had this idea of, hey, let's do a weekly column about role-playing games. Mm -hmm. And um, when I sold The Escapist to Defy Media, um, the terms of the deal gave me the rights to all of my role-playing game content um, so that... You know, if I had written about video games or anything like that, that all went under their ownership. But I got to retain ownership of all my role-playing game content. And so a few years later, I thought to myself, you know, this probably has more value than just a bunch of articles on a, on a website that I don't even run anymore. And so I, I pulled them all together and I edited them and, you know, updated them and smoothed it in. And I released it as this book on Amazon. And uh, to my surprise, it, it, it turned out to be one of the best-selling things I've ever written. It sold 5,000 copies, um, which, you know, for for a little indie book with no marketing budget. That's a pretty good success. Um, after I had that out for a while, people started to tell me, you know, man, nobody reads anymore. You have really good things to say, but no one's ever going to know because nobody reads. And I was like, what are you talking about? Nobody reads. And um, they said, no, it's all about being on YouTube now. So I started to look at YouTube and I saw, you know, these different channels. And a lot of the channels were just like a middle-aged dude with a microphone microphone. Talking about stuff he thought was cool, and I was like, "Well, I'm a middle-aged dude with a microphone. I can talk about stuff I think is cool." And um, and so I, I started the channel, and I figured, you know, let me let me use Arbiter of Worlds as my script to um, to, to push this out there, you know, because a lot of the advice in, in Arbiter of Worlds is actually outside the mainstream of the advice you get uh, from the from the rest of the tabletop gaming community, which is all about story and narrative and drama. And I'm you know I'm I'm coming in the other perspective. I'm like you know, have you simulated your economy? So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's a great read. I, um, I remember getting it and, um, actually read it, reread it during the pandemic year, uh, you know, 2020 again. And I keep coming back to it. you know, um, uh, in preparation for this uh, conversation as well, coming back to it, there's so many good things in there. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is right at the back, there is an appendix about alignment. Okay? Oh yes. And, um, i i thought that was fascinating it's really really nice read you've got like your i think there's three approaches to alignment in there something like that and they get the team thing that you get from sort of beck me you know there's law and there's chaos and they're they're fighting yep. each other um and then there's there's also an allusion to palladium's approach to that sort of like a code of of behavior and what have you but my favorite bit is the bit see being a teacher of philosophy and religion uh the bit for me was the bit about uh Alignment as philosophy, you know, as in deontological versus, you know, um, uh, you know teleological theory of of ethics. So, um, I wanted to ask you: is first of all, why do you think uh, GMs ignore alignment, especially in D and D? And then, secondly, why is that a huge mistake? Oh, it's such a great question.
1: Why does everyone ignore alignment? And I think the answer to that is because. Um, the vast majority of people today have completely disordered um, chaotic and confused moral systems. Um, There's this wonderful book called by Alasdair McIntyre called after virtue. And he, um, you know, lays out, you know, the original classical view of morality, which was teaching you how to live a good life. And then he shows how in the enlightenment, this became, Um, detached from any element of living a good life and became like an external moral code, but how they were never able to find a rational basis for that. And eventually it collapses into nihilism. And he concludes at the end, you know, Aristotle versus Nietzsche is your choice. And um, I read, I read that book in law school and, you know, my mind just blew up. And um, and that was kind of the start of my journey into studying classical philosophy. Mm. So I, 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 I think, um, a lot of people struggle with alignment because they're morally confused in the real world. And it's mm. just an unfortunate state of affairs um, in terms of why I think it matters, man. I mean, the, the struggle between good and evil, law and chaos, order and disorder, you know, it's fundamental to every religion, every mythical series, um, every great legend. And, um, you know, we're really quick nowadays in the modern world to just, you know, dismiss it and let things collapse into pure nihilism and nothing really matters or it's all relative. Or who are you to say that, you know, the chaotic cultists that are ripping out the still beating hearts of innocent victims on their blood pyramids are evil. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, those folks, I think, are, are, you know, what are they like? The C.S. Lewis men without chess, right? Like they're missing something important.
0: It feels to me like there's so many great role playing opportunities you know, in the that. I mean, even if you just take the simple team approach, you know, like that, I've got team lore and team chaos and they yep. are battling. Um, and I always feel like that having the neutral lot in the middle is always a bit of a cop out in a way. I, I get it for the animal kingdom, maybe. Um, but, I, you know, I feel like choose a side is isn't that a classical dramatic thing anyway but certainly when it comes to wargaming and our roots in, in d I mean that's where that comes from um surely you know this idea of like it's blue versus red isn't it and kind of right. you know here we go into battle um but I feel like so many people they're uncomfortable you know, with actually having a, any kind of moral absolutism or, you know, and even if they're going to play with um, a, a more sort of relativist ethical approach is like, again, back away from the realities of that. Um, and Um And I don't know, for me, that just, Again, if I w- come back to the simulating a believable world, people in the real world and people in a, in a believable fantasy world will have values and they will stand and die for things. I mean, if I'm going to run an army and I'm going to motivate an entire you know, population of people to go and conquer my neighbor, like the Romans did, you know, you want to have uh, some reason yeah, to try and motivate them. And surely that, again, comes from. You know, so I guess there's an element of like um, imperialist supremacy, but there's also, isn't there, like this sense of like, well, we do things properly over here, and we want to like bring uh, enlightenment to you know, the the neighbouring country kind of thing. And I know that's colonialism, and I know that's like uncomfortable, you know, from our own history. But uh, ultimately, there's drama there in the back, in the, in the gaming table for me. But maybe I'm digging myself into a hole. I don't know.
1: No, no, not at all. If you're in a hole, I'm in the hole with you. I've I've Mm. got a big shovel. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you know, you're obviously like myself, a student of history. If you look back at the record of human history, it's it's the record of imperialism, colonialism, of um, war and violence between different ethnicities, different nations, different realms, different empires. Um, You know, it didn't, it didn't get invented in the 19th century by the Victorians, right? Like that's history. And, you know, I, and I think there's, that's deeply rooted in, um, in human nature uh, is this, you know, uh, this, this, the, the, you know, what the Greeks called the agon, right? The struggle. Mm. And, um, and so the question is, well, what do you do with it? Right? Like, it's not going to go away. Like, you know, each of us, inside is not evolutionarily very far removed from a bronze age warrior um, ready to sack Troy. So what do you do with that? And so, you know, it seems like a lot of people, it's like, well, repress it. You know, we can't, we can't, we got, we got to keep that down. We got to, we got to make sure that never gets allowed to surface. I think role-playing games are a great way of sublimating it, right? Like I never feel the need to be angry or violent in real life because, I get to play a berserker every Friday night and, you know, bring bloody mayhem to the foes that cross me, you know? And if uh, if I'm imagining that some of those orcs that I'm slaying happen to look like some of the people that irritate me on Twitter, great, you know, great. I'm just burning off steam. And, um, you know, and in order to do that, in order to be able to enjoy that, you need to have an alignment system that says it's okay to do that. I'm killing evil. So I, I think, you know, I think it's all, it's all kind of integrated together.
0: Yeah, I think like, the thing with it as well is, you know, there's so much discomfort around, like, the concept of right and wrong and making, like, moral decisions, as you as you kind of alluded to. Um, I think that backing away from it and sort of saying, oh, we're not having that as part of our game, that that is in itself, um, you know, a loss of opportunity. Because for me, again, the role-playing games is where what I learned over the years is I get to play different versions of me So, for example, if I play a thief, um, I'm no thief, but I get to imagine being one and I get to find out what the consequences of that lifestyle are. And I get to realize perhaps that being a thief really isn't for me after all, Um, you know, in real life, which is a useful thing psychologically and emotionally, I'd imagine. Um, But also I get to have fun with being a thief until I get caught and, you know, have my hands chopped off and thrown into jail and, you know, hung or whatever it is that will come as a consequence of that in the fantasy world that I'm in. And like you said, I get to be a, a, you know, a blood crazed barbarian, or I get to be, uh, you know, somebody who's seeking after great magical power and like, and again, taking a system through where you can build your power and see how that affects a fantasy world around you seems to me not an unhealthy thing. Um, Despite what the, you know, Puritans in the early eighties wanted to try and tell us about the satanic panic, you know, but, um, but I agree this thing of, why don't we, yeah, we can explore these fantasies in a really safe way and learn something about ourselves along the way. Right. Right. For sure. For sure. You know, and maybe of it is some
1: level of discomfort that maybe we don't want to learn about ourselves. Maybe it's better to keep an ironic distance and just laugh at it. Mm. Um, You know, but like I've, I've seen things happen in role-playing games and I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. Like I just learned something about this person. And, you know, for, for instance, um, you know, very interesting phenomenon is that if the players hire hirelings in, you know, basic DD or acts or whatever, and the hirelings get killed, it's kind of like a laugh. Like, oh, there goes more cannon fodder. But if they buy a dog and they name their war dog and that war dog gets killed, then it's like, we will unleash hell and revenge <laughs> rover. You're just like, wow, you know, you just had 14 hirelings get slaughtered in the last room, but you're pissed about the dog. That's like a really interesting thing. Like, why is that? Um, you, know, you know, I saw uh, another one where um, I was running, I ran a game. It was a zombie apocalypse RPG. And the premise was you play yourself right now. You're at a business conference because we were playing at a business conference. You're at a business conference and the zombie apocalypse happens. What do you do? And so we literally role-played it starting from the room we were actually in. And, um, and what was astonishing was like our marketing director got bitten concealed it from everybody and ended up you know going into the um you know going into the quarantine zone and then of course she turned and distorted the quarantine zone whereas um we had another guy who was like a former military vet he'd won a bronze star and um and he got bitten and he was like all right everybody I've gotten bitten. So give me your weapons and grenades and I'm going to go attack the enemy and destroy it. Many of them is like, you know, it is, and it was, it was really interesting to see like this difference of like the conniving, you know, how do I get into quarantine? Maybe they have a, a, a cure. And, um, you know, I, I think it's fantastic to be able to explore issues like that. I don't know why more people don't want to do that. Uh, unless again, it's just either they're, you know, they are themselves so confused about what's right and wrong, or they're afraid to think about these things, but I, I love it. And we've, we've explored all sorts of really interesting themes in my games.
0: So, what I mean, you wrote Arbiter Worlds because you had like some articles and you, you know, and you obviously have this um, simulationist approach to like, to being a GM and everything else. Um, but I mean, what was the reaction to that? I mean, have you had like, I mean, 5,000 people bought your book and, you know, kind of gone out there and, and Surely that had some impact on your, you know, on acts and and the other sales and everything that you did. Yeah. Um. Well, the initial reaction was actually
1: very negative. Right. Um. Because when I started publishing back in two thousand eight, uh, the OSR was a smaller place, and gaming was really dominated by at the time the Forge theorists who were creating the story game movement. Yeah. You know, fourth edition, which was all about fudging and and uh, things like that. And so here's me coming along, you know, with this you know, very prescriptive um, explanation of how you should run games. And it was like, well, who the hell do you think you are? And you've obviously never even played an RPG. I mean, it was just outrageous. The responses I got to uh, those articles, it was super punitively negative. Hmm. Um, But, you know, I just kind of kept plugging away and I would respond nicely in the comments and kind of built it up. By the time I released the book seven years later, it, um, it got a much better reception. Um, uh, although it got one negative review, which was a guy said, yeah, this book is coming out about seven years too late. And I was like, Oh, Oh, come, come on. on. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I got a much better reception on Amazon and a lot of folks have told me like, uh, have sent me really nice notes. Like, Hey, you totally changed the way I GM. Hey, my campaigns are so much better. Now my players are complimenting me on how great it is. You know, uh, you confirmed all these things that I thought were true, but I'd never seen in writing. Like, like, really heartwarming stuff that makes me feel good. So mm. I do think it's, it's made a difference, right? There's at least, you know, 5,000 game masters out there now who are running, um, you know, something closer to my style than existed previously. And a lot of them have become customers and fans of my games as well. So that mm. it, um, it turned out to be a really good investment of time and energy. Um, kind of, you know, to my surprise, because I was just, you know, writing some essays and then compiling them together.
0: I think the most memorable bit, I mean, other than the alignment stuff for me was the top-down zoom in approach to world building. Um so would you mind just like outlining that a little bit for listeners? So I think this is possibly one of the most useful tips. And if you haven't read Arbitral Worlds, this is the reason to I think <laughs> to read it. But there we go. Top down yeah, zoom in. Yeah, so there's this uh there's this constant debate
1: between top-down and bottom-up um RPG, uh RPG world building, right? And if you go onto like Reddit's like you know, subreddits like with the world building subreddit, you know, they take that top down approach. And these are guys who invest countless hours in tectonic plate movements and creating fictional uh, histories for every single culture in their world and constructing an entire language. And they, you know, and it takes them 10 years. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have um, sort of the bottom up movement where uh, they're just like, Hey, we're playing keep on the borderlands and, it doesn't even exist anywhere in a world. Like what's the name of the world? It's just called the world. Let's just start playing. Mm -hmm. And then they just kind of keep building on it and building on it, building on it, you know, depending on what adventure they decide to run. Um, So the former is problematic because it puts a huge burden on the game master Mm. and it puts a huge burden on the players because they end up being expected to know or care about all of this material that's been written, which probably is irrelevant to them and honestly, from what I can tell based on YouTube, most people are pretty oblivious about the world they live in. So I imagine that would also be true in a fantasy world. Um, and yet, you know, there ends up this expectation, like, oh, I, I can't believe you named your character that because um, you know, that that isn't an appropriate name in the setting. Well, I didn't read your 50 page guide, Bob. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, but then top down, you get the opposite problem, or sorry, bottom up, you get the opposite problem, right? Where the world makes no sense. And you're like, I don't get it. Like, you know, you say there's a dragon layer six miles away, but no one in the village ever mentioned the dragon layer to us in all the six months of gameplay we spent in that village. And it's like, well, the dragon layer didn't exist until 10 minutes ago. That's why. Mm. So, what top down zoom in says is that um, you need to use both methods. And you start at the top, but the higher you are up, so the further away you are from the gameplay. Um, the more generalized, abstract, and broad you are. And as you get closer to the level of where the players are actually going to interact, then you get increasingly detailed. So, you know, like I say, for your overall world, like you want to have a paragraph of description, maybe one page of a timeline with bullet points, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like maybe one page just kind of laying out roughly the geography and the countries. And that's it. Move on you know, then you, then you focus in, you zoom into the region where the game is going to be happening. And then you give a little paragraph about the region, a little timeline for the region. Then you create a gazetteer of locations in the region, and then you zoom in again to the starting location. And then you sketch out the starting location and the starting dungeon. And, um, and by doing that, you get most to virtually all of the benefits of a top-down world, and you avoid most of the problems of a bottom-up world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I've been using it for 20 years as an approach, and I, it's
0: never failed me. Uh I think, it, it was, like I said, for me, one of the things that has ended that discussion, because it sort of says do both, <laughs> which I just think is really helpful. Um, and again, it, I think for so many GMs, it gives, them, it gives them permission to imagine some really grand things, but at the same time, remember, what really matters to your players is what's happening in the right. I don't know, town or wherever they, where they're starting, you know, and around there. So that's really great.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's easy to get lost in the woods of, um, you know, world of world building. Like, I mean, for instance, you know, at one point I created astrological tables with Zodiac signs for my campaign world. Right. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, the, the amount of shit that my players gave about that information was close to zero. Like they just didn't care. Yeah. So. Yeah, you know like okay well that was wasted time so the idea of top down zoom
0: in is to try and avoid wasting your time mm-hmm. absolutely yeah, yeah. well role-play rescue is about getting people back to the table you know those kind of um people are uh, many of us like we, we we play when we're younger and we get into a career and we sort of drift away from it you know we have families and responsibilities and all those kind of things and then um, we get to a certain age shall we say uh maybe around 50 Um, where I'm sitting right now and then we kind of feel like you know, actually I really miss doing that and I'd love to get get back into it Um, and I always ask my guests this basically is a question of like what would you suggest to a person who wants to come back to the role playing game hobby like how best to get back into it where to start what to do what's your advice That's that's a great question so first
1: man I applaud you for doing that because role playing games are so key for a lot of men to maintain their friendships, you know, like in kind of our atomized individualized society, a huge portion of adult males have very few adult male friends and they tend not to hang out with them. You know, there's been all these studies that have been found that um, adult men tend to only um, tend to only maintain their friendships if there's some sort of scheduled event around the friendship. So the bowling league, you know, and there's that whole Robert Putnam book, bowling alone about the collapse Mm -hmm. of all these social ties that used to bind um, people together. And you know, role-playing games can really fill that gap. So I would say um, the way that most of the folks I know in act seem to be doing it is they are taking advantage of the virtual tabletops, mm-hmm. um, and they're they're reaching out to all their old buddies from you know uh, grade school or primary school, and they're saying, "Hey, man, we're putting the band back together. We're going to play. We're going to play on virtual tabletop. You know, log in Sunday night, 8 p.m." And I'm doing that now, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm literally playing acts with my gaming group from college from 30 years ago. Yeah. And um, you know, and it's like putting the band back together and it's just such great fun. Um, So that's, that's one route. Now the downside to that route is that uh, you know, you're on virtual tabletop rather than in person and there's mm-hmm. something special about being in person. Um, The other route, and this is the route I've often done is, you know, I just, take my d d books or my RPG books into the office. I talk about being a gamer and then get people interested. I kind of seek out my fellow nerds uh, in places where I can. And then, um, and then I'm like, hey, I'm going to run a game. Who wants to? You know, And I go out of my way to make that first session as newbie friendly as possible. You know, pre-created characters. It's all good. Um, and people tend to be really into it. They're like, this was really good fun. And then you build from there. I guess the third route, and this is, I think is the hardest route is the, you know, go to the game store or go online and find total strangers to game with. And that's, that's definitely really tough. And I think, um, you know, uh, if you can, you want to do one of the, the prior two paths, but you know, worst case, there's just nothing stopping you from just getting back in. And there's always a GM shortage. So anyone who wants to GM can probably find players. Mm.
0: That's great. Thank you all right i wanted to sort of round out by coming back to axe um so i I alluded to the fact that i started a new um beck me D &D campaign Um, on one hand i've got a bunch of school kids at school and it's it's newbies we've got an hour and a half on a tuesday night so playing with them is fine but i've got a couple of friends who are also you know we've started playing in the same campaign world on on a saturday night with those guys um so I, i wanted to ask is like I've got my D and D Bet Me game going. What does Axe offer? If we were to shift to Axe and look at like the second edition of that game seriously, what what would be the benefit of doing that? All right, and obviously there's all the back-end
1: stuff at the high level that we talked about, but let's yeah. focus on let's focus on the low level stuff. Um, so first um, is that it has much better balance between um, the classes. So in Acts 2, fighters have, you know, cleaving, and so they're much more formidable on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Thieves have things like shadowy senses that enable them to see in the dark. They have the ability to hastily search for traps and pick locks on the go. They can methodically do so with a big bonus. So thieves, you actually, you know, you're not just disposable cannon fodder with a 5% chance of detecting the trap. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say those are those are two big ones that are just really just improvements of BECMI. Like if you did nothing else and you just ported those two elements of the game, mm-hmm. um, you know, then there's also the mortal wounds tables and the tampering with mortality tables, which make the game a little less punitive when you hit zero hit points because you're not always dead. Mm-hmm. That helps people keep characters alive, but it's really flavorful and dramatic. Um, and then there's a, there's a proficiency system um, which lets you customize your character. So if you want to play, you know, guys like a Roman legionary, uh, you know, you can take fighting style, weapon, and shield, and you get an additional armor class bonus with a shield. You know, if you want to play a guy who's like a, you know, a Scandinavian berserker, you can take berserker gang proficiency. And mm-hmm. so we don't need to have ten thousand classes. Um, you know, a fighter can be the berserker, the scout, you know, etc. Just by mm-hmm. customizing it with those proficiencies. Right. You know, a lot of folks really enjoy character customization, which BECMI mm-hmm. doesn't offer much of. Yeah. Um, Me too. Yeah. So I would <laughs> say those are like the immediate like you'll notice these hmm. at first level advantages
0: yeah. that's cool uh, i think that the thing for me is um you know as a as a person who wants to have this deep and rich world my problem with like i mean playing D basic is great because i you know especially with those kids because i can just get them rolling dice and they can have a laugh and you know we get going yep. and it's all good fun but of course the simulationist me uh as the gm as well you know is want I find the rules so light. And I think you um, you make an illusion in Arbitra Worlds about a view that I've expo- exposed many times, which is that as you play a game, over time, you will accumulate rulings, which yes. you will write down if you're a consistent GM. And they yes. become rules right so this whole rulings not rules thing um i've never really fully got because you know you're just going to be building your rule set over time 100 percent with you i'm getting a sense that what you've done with um with axe is essentially a lot of that development work is obviously over these all these years actually sort of been done for people so it would it be fair to say that that's something that is worth looking at in itself because you know some of these things that are great ideas to add to your game are sort of in there yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Like, I, I, definitely ate my own dog food in the sense that I started with the basic rules, made rulings, made rulings, made rulings, and codified them into more rules, and, um, and I, and I, I, should add, you know, I've been very careful when I wrote uh, both Acts and Acts Two to write it in a somewhat modular format, so that a lot of the game mechanics you can um, extract and then drop in someplace else in some other system that you're currently using or want to test out. And, um, you know, a lot of game designers have this um, almost like a Puritan approach, like rules as written, don't mess with my game. Like, you know, like you don't see Monty Cook talking about how you could hack Numenera to play with Vampire the Masquerade, right? Mm-hmm. I take the opposite approach. Uh, you know, I did a whole essay. I did a whole episode of Arbiter of Worlds talking about how you ma- how you can mash up rpgs to make something that's your own mm-hmm. so axe is designed to let you mash it up and and you know uh if you like the if you like the tampering with mortality tables you can just plug them right in to be to be ECMI. you don't need to use anything else right or if you um you know if you want to use the economy you can use the economy and play fifth edition right it works so um yeah yeah so i definitely have made that an aspiration for the design and it's probably part of why the game is a little bit larger in terms of page count um, mm. is, you know, because making things modular always means you're saying, well, this is option one and this is option two and this is option three versus just, you know, the straight and narrow. Mm.
0: Something just popped into my head and people who love BX are just going to have to forgive me for asking you this, but I wondered if you had a theory about why BX in particular, the basic expert in 1981 d has become sort of seen as the standard and go-to for so many OSR types. Um, you got any theories on that? A few, a
1: few. Um, so I think one, and I, I discovered this as an adult going back to the OSR, is that most of us thought we played AD&D, but we actually played Basic D&D. If mm. you read the rules and and how people played back then, like I definitely, as a kid, was not using weapon speed factor and uh, you know weapon versus armor adjustment and all of those esoteric. Um, you know, pummeling rules and things. Um, So from a a nostalgia-driven perspective, which I think brings a lot of people to that OSR movement, um, the nostalgia that they experience is the nostalgia for the red box of BX or BECMI. Um, So that's one. And then I think number two, because it's such a rules-light chalice, uh, chassis, um, it's easy to modify. And it's hard to break. Um and so, you know, if you just want to kind of hack around, put your own unique spin on things and release a product, um, you know, it's really easy to do that. And also because it's so rules light, whatever area you decide to zoom in that's special to your game um is gonna be, you know, easy to expand upon because it's only a a, a loose framework. So if you're like, oh well. You know, it's like BX, except that at first level, your characters have these cool life paths that explain who they are and how they became what they are and give them hooks for play, which is like basically beyond the wall, right? Like, boom, um, et cetera. Whereas if you were to say, oh, I'm going to start with um, fourth edition d d or something like that, like it's much harder to hack. How about you? I mean, do you, would you, do you think that's the reason or do you think there's something else?
0: Yeah, I'm a... Uh, There's a comparison with Beck Me as well, and um, people treat that as if it's like the children's game, I think, right. <laughs> in comparison. You know, like we, I got into that. So that came out when I was 12, and I've been playing role playing for like six, five or six years before that easily. But yep. um, I sometimes wonder if. um, you know because it's the red box because that red box was all about like how to play it has got those two solo games and the first adventure you know in castle mr and all of that whether people go back to that and feel like oh but that's the kiddie game and so then they go looking for those rules and they go back to 81 and they find it's very nice and it's a very clean isn't it like set of presentation of of rules in basic expert and i and and like you said with the nostalgia of it and everything else i sometimes wonder if that's just a big part of it um, even the the big complaint with BECMI is that you get the thief gets nerfed, you know, right. uh, further. But I think there's a lot of things that get cleaned up in that. And as you go through to the rule cyclopedia in '91, you know, when that comes together, it's it's a pretty you know good system, you know, straightforward. Right, system. it is. It is. It's quite robust.
1: It's not at that point. It's not rules light. It's actually a very robust system, and. I mean, I have a ton of admiration for BECMI because Menser just went for it, right? He's like, we're going to do the campaign rules. We're going to do the war rules. You know, we're mm-hmm. going to have monsters with 200 hit dice and then you get to become a god. And yeah. like, you know, I remember getting that Immortal set, that golden box with like the guy on the cover, you know, who's mm-hmm. all looking awesome. Yeah. It was so, I was like, ah, oh, this is great. And, um, and definitely like Immortal set is not for kids, right? Like you're trying to mm-hmm. learn about you know, some pretty esoteric concepts of the multiverse and entropy and things like that. Like, you know, that wasn't a game for eight-year-olds.
0: So oh, Absolutely. Yeah, and it's just interesting. I, I I don't know. I mean, again, there are people who love, like, the 77 homes as well, you know, and all of it. So um, I guess we all have our you – know, we enjoy d d in lots of different ways. But um, I'm just curious about it because it's become, you know, like, especially with uh, republishing – old school essentials essentially being that game that kind of represented you know it's just become a huge game i was just curious yeah right then yeah. so to wrap it up um what would i mean what do you wish you if you could tell a gm like who's getting back to the game like when they're approaching their game any piece of kind of serious advice you talked about how to get back to the table but any piece of serious advice about getting yourself gm in again and producing a good game what would where would you start what would be the big thing Read my book. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely if you, could have predicted that. If you, if
1: you don't like to read, watch my YouTube channel. Um, mm. But the other thing I would just say is just do it. You learn by doing, and just do it. There's, there's, not nothing is stopping you. Get the book, crack it open, run the campaign.
0: Go for it. Well, Alex, it's been absolutely great chatting to you so thanks so much for coming on um we'd have to make sure all the links and stuff are in the show notes for people to find the kickstarter and everything else um awesome. but yeah it's been absolutely absolute honor to get you on
1: oh awesome thank you
0: so that's it big thank you once again to Alex Macliss for coming and talking about the Adventurer Conqueror King system and all the other great things we discussed links to the Kickstarter for Axe 2 plus Alex's YouTube and Patreon are all in the show notes thanks as ever to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com RPG Rescue thank you once again to John from Tale of the Manticore for the awesome Roleplay Rescue theme music most of all thank you to you for showing up and listening. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again on the flip side. Game on.